Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. The things that we found exciting this time tended to move away from that and, and be less about the speed and about you know the drummer essentially it's more about finding the the riffs and the ideas that that had a bit more uh, atmosphere welcome to heavy hops my name is alexi my name's sam joining us this week is tim pope keyboardist programmer and lyricist for the australian extreme metal band viamenta describing this band's sound whether on a single album or as a characterization over time in a two or three word genre title is challenging. Maybe that's the point. Revelator, the band's fourth album, which was released in February by Debemur Morty Productions, represents the biggest stylistic jump between albums to date. Tim identifies the use of organic sounds and process, which recast the role his instrument plays in the context of the band's sound, a shift towards spontaneity deconstruction and recontextualization in the lyrical composition, and an exploration of the tension between atmosphere and pace as key factors in the construction of Revelator. We also discuss incorporating a vocalist into the writing process for the first time in the band's 20 plus year career, and the emphasis on visual presentation through three haunting music videos. Be sure to check out the episode notes to see and hear the Amenta's music. Let's dive and get heavy. Tim Pope, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. So let's begin with uh, the sort of construction of your new album, uh, Revelator. So in the past, you've spoken about how each Amenta album is a reaction against songs of past albums and can you explain this perspective a little bit and how it sort of informs your writing or how you're finding inspiration yeah um i think i say that quite a lot and i think um sometimes i guess it comes across like we're we're really deliberately turning against what we did where it isn't really that it's it's quite a um an organic process where uh we tend to when we when we write we're chasing that that moment where it gets really exciting and you and you think this is something new and kind of if you're writing with someone across the room you kind of smile at each other going yeah this is this is really interesting this is cool uh, and for us that tends to be um something we haven't done before so there's definitely been occasions where we've written a riff or a song or you know part of a song and we get along and it's it's going okay but you realize that it's it's too similar to something we've already done and because it's sort of it's familiar, it becomes less exciting. Um, it's the things that are unfamiliar and sometimes quite scary that become the kind of the really exciting things, and they end up being the things that you end up chasing uh, and end up making the sort of the bones of the album. So it's kind of a process of just just sort of like panning for gold, coming up with a whole bunch of ideas and finding the ones that are the most exciting, which tends to be the ones that are completely different to everything we've done before. So it's not a sort of a process of, of absolute rejection. It's it's quite a positive process of finding uh, the item that that 
because it is in a completely new direction to everything you've done before, it does tend to be in reaction to that. And so with, uh, with this album, there's, a, there's uh, in comparison to the steps that you've taken in the past, whether between Akasis and Non or Non and Flesh's Air, and now uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interesting sorts of uh, steps that were taken here. Um, and so let's set this album up a little bit with, uh, with a discussion about the writing. So when you were uh, talking about the construction of these songs, uh, where were you sort of finding some of your excitement this time that led to your inspiration points? I think a lot of the things that we found exciting this time were, um, obviously we, we have a reputation for being a little bit more, I guess, extreme and, and fast and, you know, for want of a better word, brutal. Um, the things that we found exciting this time tended to move away from that and, and be less about the speed and about, you know, the drummer, essentially. It's more about finding the, the riffs and the ideas that, that had a bit more uh, atmosphere. And I think the weight came from uh, pulling things back a bit in terms of pace and finding finding the the point where songs, um, if not grooved, because groove is not something we do all that often, um, but kind of they ideas kind of felt like they sat in the pocket a bit more and 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 then allowing those ideas to hang around a bit more. So rather, in the past, we'd go through and go, here's a great riff, play it eight times, time for a new thing, come back to that riff maybe. But this time it was kind of, let's try and play the riff for as long as we can almost like a, a kind of inspired a little bit, I guess, by swans and things like that, where um, they'd have a sort of a motif that they repeat for sometimes 30 minutes and allow it to grow and, and build on it and things like that. We tried a lot of that sort of stuff and, and let ideas sort of dictate how long they'd actually go within the song by themselves by just sort of playing them and listening to them and seeing how, how long it took for them to feel old rather than just completely, you know, time to change, time to change, time to change. Uh, which a lot of our old stuff, um, while I think still still constructed very well, is more of that sort of more traditional um, death metal, black metal thing where where riffs kind of suggest other riffs. This one was more about let's let's let the songs breathe a bit and let the um, the ideas kind of hang around for a bit and 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 see if we can change them slightly and make them exciting again. Um, so that kind of thing just naturally led to I think a more um, open and expressive album. I think. Did you find this way of writing freeing for you? Would like when you think of writing music in a binary sense, such as like this is this riff is going to be eight parts repeated, and then you have, you go to the next part, and instead breaking all that down, and you look at something as a whole from the get go. Yeah, it, it definitely can be. So uh, I think um, it takes it certainly takes a lot of pressure off because obviously it's really easy to come up with a well, relatively easy to come up with a cool riff or a cool part or whatever. Um, the hard part is then to go where to go from that. Um, this time it was actually quite natural and organic to kind of just keep going and playing with it, uh, which meant that songs kind of seemed to come together a lot quicker. We had, had to obviously come up with less parts, which was cool. Um, but it also, it means that you can kind of give your, the ideas the appropriate amount of weight. Whereas in the past, there've been parts that I've really, really liked. And just because of the nature of the way the songs are constructed, you kind of, it's a hit it and quit it kind of thing. This time you can kind of, you can wallow in them a bit more, which is kind of cool. So for a, a writing perspective, not only was it, you know, easier in some, some ways, but I think it's also more rewarding in others. 
it's interesting because sort of how you expand some of these riffs or give them space to breathe is actually where a lot of the tension comes from for me as a listener, where uh, there's a creation of unexpectedness that comes from that when in the context of like death metal and black metal, we expect, we almost know what we're expecting next in some way. And so with that, uh, within the context, uh, even for a band that uh, with your reputation to change things up from album to album, this is a whole new thing to where there is a tension that comes because you don't have that expectation of what's going to come, what's going to come next. And so I think um, that was, that was something new for me as a, as a listener. Yeah, that's cool. And I I think tension is a really good word. I think um, that's one of the, one of the items we were really interested in exploring was that tension, the eeriness that comes from kind of like holding things for just that little bit longer. So I think tension is, is definitely one of the kind of, you know, without being a conscious thing, one of the the buzzwords that we kind of had in mind thinking about for the album. And so with this, uh, another sort of new thing or newish thing for the Amenta uh, was all of the additional distance that took place between Eric uh, living abroad, uh, Kane, who has kind of come into, I mean, over a longer period of time coming in as a more creative force for the band. And then yourself, I mean, you guys are nowhere near each other in a lot of, uh, for a lot of time. And yeah. so what is it like sort of uh, sharing these ideas outside of a, outside of a rehearsal space uh, when you're now creating as three instead of two? Yeah. It's um, in some ways we're, we're lucky with timing and things like that. Eric, um, Eric left for the UK after we'd written pretty much the bones of the album. So we were able to write a lot of it together as we always kind of have done uh, in our sort of home studio. The outside of the rehearsal room thing, we've we've basically never been one of those bands who write in a rehearsal room. It's always basically been usually just us two sitting around um, in a room with a computer and a few guitars, just just knocking it out that way. So the the full band thing has never really been something we've ever been able to get to work in that sense. Um, so that that side of things we we're quite used to when Eric went overseas and obviously Kane's been in the band for some time and has always lived in Perth. Um, we, we've become quite used to that sort of way of creating things even before the pandemic and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's actually quite natural for us because I think, um, well, I, th- I guess I prefer to be able to be in the room with someone when you're writing, because I think a lot of it is, um bouncing ideas off each other and that's that's the the way you achieve the best result is you kind of have an idea if someone goes that's cool what about this what about this uh it's the person suggesting other things that that makes it what it is uh so we haven't actually written anything at the moment um separate so eric's now back in australia but he's now he's living in adelaide so he's sort of in between kane and i so we're still ridiculously spread out still three different time zones um so we haven't yet written like that but a lot of the recording, well, all of the recording was done uh, when we were all living completely separate. And so that was, in some ways, that was actually a benefit, um, the recording side as opposed to the writing, because we can, you can kind of come up with something, you can send it away for the other guys to check out. So we were obviously using a lot of uh, drive and Dropbox and all that sort of stuff. We'd send a sort of work in progress bounce over to the other guys. Uh, and they'd come back and go, this is really cool. Or, you know, that's not, maybe you need to change this bit. This is not quite right here. I was thinking this could do this. Uh, and the cool thing about kind of having to do it, sending it away and kind of having to leave it for a moment is 
I think in some ways you don't get as attached to parts. When you're, when you're in the middle of it and you're in the guts of it and you're, you're recording and someone says, oh, can you do it a little bit different? Sometimes you're, you're breaking the, the, the stride of what you're doing and it can be a little bit irritating. It can be kind of like, hang on, just let me, just, just let me finish this idea and then you'll see. Whereas this one is like, here is my entire idea. Tell me what you think. And they come back with something and you're not kind of in the middle of it and you don't have to change, change gears. I'll come back with something which might actually inspire the next round of recording. So in that sense, um, while I don't know if it was a benefit, it was definitely something that we uh, could embrace and, and could get something positive out of. Um, for Kane always being over in Perth, we're used to uh, always, ever, ever since he's been in the band, it's been about, you know, he'll work on something, send us a file and we'll, we'll check it out and give him feedback. Um, it was cool though with this album we did have um, a couple of chances when Eric was in the UK and, and Kane in Perth uh, they both ended up in uh, Sydney at the same time so we were able to do some vocal pre-production all together in a room which is really really cool that was that was a, actually a lot of fun to actually be in the room all three of us together and just just try ideas and, and play around so we over the course of this we actually got uh, a fair bit of different um, different experiences in the, in terms of the writing and recording, which allowed us to kind of achieve the whole thing. I don't know if it would have ended up the same if we hadn't had those times to be in the same room, uh, but also had that distance where we could, we could allow things to kind of expand and do the full ideas to come out before people started putting their two cents in. So it was, you know, it's a, it was an odd experience, but I think it overall was pretty positive. Yeah. And when you're bouncing tracks back and forth to one another, is there ever a point where, um, another member will build on an idea of a track that's sent over and then bounce that back to that person? Or is it more just a, a creative feedback kind of loop that you guys have? Because it, most of it happened um, in the recording process, I guess, more than anything, it was mainly suggestions. Um, but where there is kind of the building on is we, the way we kind of work is we all have our um, internal, our own sort of um, personal studio things. Um, and we'd all record our own tracks and give them to Eric who mixed it. And he did a lot of, um, I guess like dub style, um, post-production on a lot of tracks. So he built a sort of massive rack of, of guitar pedals and things, and he was running vocals through it or he'll run keyboards through it and do a lot of things like that. And so he would take out kind of raw material and then try some crazy shit and send it back and go, what do you think about this? Is this cool? You know, is this, does this sort of work with your idea? Does it add to the album? All that sort of stuff. So there was in, in, I guess, the post-production phase, there was actually a lot of that aspect, um, which was really cool. And that was, um, I think, adds to a lot of the sound of the album. There's a lot of quite odd um, sounds that, especially in, you know, I'm talking just keyboards now, there were sounds that I'd recorded that I was like, yep, yeah, that's cool. Um, and then Eric did a thing with a pedal. So there's, there's a bit at the end of Twine Towers, for example, where there was this synth bass that I'd made and he turned it into this sort of panning, um, like a chewing kind of whopping sound through a, a tremolo pedal. And I was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. What did I think of that? So there was all that sort of stuff, which was really, really cool. Uh, so it, it, there was that kind of extra creativity at the end, which was cool. Now, your uh, sort of style and how you uh, create keyboards isn't really orchestral or... Uh, you're not playing a piano uh, in Dragon Force, so um, <laughs> like let's let's. I'm kind of curious about how you create sound and how you're sort of looking at sound for the space, um, because uh, you also alluded to 
it being a collaborative process uh, with Eric. So when you were putting together your sounds and your ideas, what were you sort of starting with? Um, well, I guess I'm definitely, you know, I've never been a big fan of that, that really bombastic orchestral kind of keyboard thing. I think um, it's, it's not what I listen to at all in any, any way, shape or form. So it's something that I've tried to avoid uh, forever. And I think one of the reasons why the band sounds the way it does is we kind of started out in the late 90s when there was that kind of boom of, um, it was just before the black and death metal thing became a, a thing and, and bands tended to be around that sort of more orchestral uh, black metal, Dumo Borgia kind of nonsense. So we had that instrumentation, uh, but not the desire to sound like that. Um, and so we're taking what would be a typical late 90s black metal lineup and trying to make the ugliest music we could. And so taking a keyboard and saying, well, I don't want it to sound like I'm pretending it it's an orchestra. I want it to sound ugly and unique and, and strange. So that's from that point, from that late 90s, it's been a process of finding a way to to play the instrument in a way that isn't that. Um, and that's the, what that's been has changed a lot over the, over the years. Um, I found my equipment is getting more and more sparse and less and less um, actual instruments. So in, in the past, it was all keyboards. And then for the non-album, it was all, a lot of it was computer and a lot of soft synths and a lot of uh, um, like plugins and things like that. And then for Flesh's Air, it was a lot of samples, a lot of um, samples that I'd made myself, a lot of stuff around the house. I, I have this process, which in my head, and I've, I've never said it out loud, and it's probably going to sound stupid as soon as I say it, but this is the way I think of it in my head, is uh, kitchen sink gamelan. So you go into, go into the kitchen and get some pots and pans and shit and mic them up and hit them and put them through uh, plugins and things like that. Um, so for then for this album, I wanted to try something uh, different, obviously, because you keep doing the same thing, you got to keep making the same sounds and that's boring for everyone. So I thought I'll limit my palette again um, and I'll, I'll try some different, different instruments so that I'm forced to come up with different sounds and it's going to make the album have its own unique sound. Um, so this time I tried to keep it out of the computer as much as possible. So I didn't want to do uh, too much sort of mucking around with the sound I'd recorded, preferably just recording straight in. Uh, no MIDI at all this time. So sometimes there's a little bit of programming. This time was, the rule was no programming. Uh, I, had, I had a computer which was running soft synths, but that was running directly into another computer. It's like, that's the tape machine. That's the one that's going to take the full result. So anything, once it's in there, can't be touched outside of adding some plugins and shit on top, but no, no MIDI, no, um, there was some audio editing and things like that, but no, no programming had to be real keyboards or, um, the, the majority of the sounds actually came from, uh, a few circuit bend guitar pedals that I have and, uh, feedback loop. So it's just like a really, really simple electric electronic circuit that just feeds the sound back in on itself. And I'd run that through, uh, a circuit bent delay pedal and some distortion and things like that. Uh, and that, that makes a, a variety of different sounds. Um, and then I also had some other things like I had a, um, a typewriter that had a, um, a little microphone in it. So you could pick up the mechanics of the typewriter and uh, a few metal boxes and, and basically, you know, the kitchen sink gamelan garbage that I'd, I'd pick up and run through that, that same circuit, but that, that feedback loop and all those guitar effects were the primary thing. And one of the, the, toys that I have is that circuit bent delay pedal, which has, um, it's got uh, photo resistors in it, which change the resistance of the circuit uh, based on the amount of available light. 
Uh, and the cool thing about that is uh, once you've once you use it and and my where my studio is, I've got a big window open to the sun. Uh, so it changes throughout the day. Um, anything that actually happens throughout the process of, of recording that is probably not repeatable. So it was kind of a, you come up with something cool, you record it, and then I couldn't do it again if I tried. You know, the ideas are completely, completely gone. So it was a process of, of finding those things and playing with things. And um, there was also actually, for us, unusual, but I, I wanted to bring in a lot more um, piano this time. Um, rather than in the past, I've avoided piano because that's the, the tinkliest and, and most pretty of keyboards. So I decided, right, normally that's that's completely verboten. This time I, I wanted to bring in some of that sort of stuff. Uh, so there is a little bit of piano there um, in things like, uh, I know there's got some in Silent Twin and there's some in um, Passover and things like that. Uh, and then the other trick I had that I used a lot was I had a violin bow and that pretty much got used on anything I possibly could. So that was... Um, I, I bowed guitars. Um, I bowed a, a pedestal fan that made this horrible screeching sound. Um, all sorts of things with, with that violin bow and usually through the effects again. So it was just kind of trying to take things out of the out of the box and keep them as real world as possible and and play with play with actual physical things and get a physicality to the sound. So that was that was my plan. I think that's amazing. And we live in such an era where digital sound is what's dominating all the music we listen to, right? And so seeing your approach coming in and using that like organic real world sounds and then bringing that into the studio, that's, um, you, don't, you don't really get that as much anymore. Can you kind of walk us through why you chose to do that over working with digital sounds and how much more of a, uh, I guess, was it difficult overusing digital sounds? I think um, for, me, for me, using the digital sounds would probably be more difficult because it's I find them less inspiring. So uh, it's, it's actually very easy to create music with, um, with computers now. Anyone can do it. And, and there's, you know, if you go into Bandcamp or something like that, there is, there's a whole loops. You can, you can build a song out of loops, pre-existing loops, which is going to sound like music and people are going to hear it and go, that's definitely a song. But for me, it's hard to hard to do that because you'd start doing it and go, there's nothing in this. It's not interesting to me. It's sort of, I don't know how people would do it. And I don't know how it would work in the context of, of the, the music that the other guys are creating or we're creating together. To, to put that stuff in um, would actually be forced. Whereas I think one of the cool things about doing the real world stuff is, especially since I can't replicate the sounds again once they're done, it's a moment of you plug everything in and go, what's it going to sound like? And if it sounds really cool, it becomes inspiring. You go, fuck, that's going to work really well on that, that part that I was thinking about. And so you'd go in and try it. Uh, and the sounds actually inspire the ideas and inspire the songs. And, and, and it seems to be a, a more organic way of working. One of the, I guess I was thinking about this the other day, one of the reasons why I think my own personal kind of music sounds the way it does uh, is I'm, I'm relatively well-versed in music theory and things like that. I've studied music at, at uni and that I find is actually a hindrance to me. So when I approach a song, the first thing I think about is, is it in a theoretical context. So if Eric is playing a guitar riff and I'm thinking about, okay, what can I play over the top of that? My first thought is to go, okay, well, he's playing, it's in the key of D minor. So I could play this and I could do this, which I actually find is a really... Um, 
uninspiring way to write music. Uh, and one of the one of the early kind of experiences in Eric and I writing together, I remember this this one particular time really really well. Was he was playing, he played something, or you know, some one of us played something a guitar part, and he played something over the top of it. And I remember saying, "No, you can't play that, because those two notes clash." And I remember him saying, "I don't really care. It sounds good to me. Let's let's just do it." And to me, it was like, "Hang on, no, 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 you can't do that. Those, that's that's out of key." But it did sound good. Um, so one of the the things that I've over the last twenty years have been working towards is kind of trying to divorce that part of my brain from the actual process so that I'm forced to do things only with my ears and not with my brain. Um, so playing real world instruments like this, it, there's no, there's no rule book. So when I plug stuff in and, and it starts feeding back, it's not feeding back Well, it is feeding back in a note, but it's not necessarily a key. So I can't, I can't control that. It's about finding the place where it works. So I think it, it forces me to use my ears a lot more. Um, and I, I find that a lot more inspiring. Whereas I think if you use using digital loops, you're as soon as you start using digital music, you immediately start thinking of music as a grid, and you start mapping things to uh, bar grids and things like that. Um, you've got keys. You know, a lot of digital stuff will tell you what key it's in, and you can kind of do all that sort of stuff. So the happy accidents don't happen, and I think the happy accidents are kind of key to what we do. Is finding that moment where you just go. Like I didn't mean that to happen, but that's really, really good. And you, you chase that. So th I think um, doing this sort of stuff actually makes it a lot easier for me to do what I do. I like that you also brought up um, a lot of people working on the grid. So when you were recording this album, was there, um, was there a link between you guys using a click track? And if so, how did you kind of implement that? Because it's a very structured way of going about um, writing a song. And if you didn't, that further helps you with this idea of tension that you were trying to create because you're not really necessarily working on a computer clicking you along. So how, how did that process go with this album? I guess um, there, there is still, we're still a modern band in the sense that there is still grid aspects. Um, so we do, we do record everything to a click. Um, but part of, before we go into that, so when we, when we write, we tend to write in Logic and we we program drums and, and record to that. So we're still um, we're still fundamentally grid based. Um, part of what I do more so than anyone else is try and just find ways to kind of poke at the grid and try and um, make it less militaristically sort of you know so so square. Um, so with this album more than any other. Uh, there was a deliberate decision to let things drift a little bit. So uh, the the vibe was obviously the most important. So so Dave, when he recorded the drums, we we'd worked out clicks and we'd worked out tempos, but there was a lot of uh, deliberate focus on the push and pull of it. So you know, there um, as you're coming into a chorus, it's going to speed up slightly. Um, you know, riffs as you come into the middle eight, it's going to pull back. All this sort of stuff. Um, there's no sort of we never set a song and said this song is in 220 BPM. It'd be start at 220, it goes to 223, down to 217, all that sort of stuff. So there was a focus on on allowing the natural drift of tempo and allowing Dave's playing to kind of sometimes dictate um, the way the click was going to end up. So we did sell a lot of pre-production and things like that to make sure that our tempos were right. Um, but then when we recorded, it was also kind of let's let's allow things to be as natural as possible. If he if the feel of what he's playing was right, but it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't like burying the click then 
let's just go with it. And everyone will just record around it. So in the past, especially with an album like Non, where everything was so fucking, we like recorded for months and months and months, making sure everything was just like, that whole point of that album was that it was going to be like absolutely fucking militaristic again, to use that fucking word. It was all stuck to the, stuck to the, the beat. Whereas this one, we wanted things to be a little bit more loose. And from my side, um, I, I generally don't record to any click. Or no, I don't on this album. Um, it was more just to, I'd just play and play over the top and let, deliberately let sounds hang. Uh, whereas before we'd kind of cut them hard. Uh, so if I was doing, I do a lot of distortion rushes and things like that. And in the past, when I programmed it, you tend to program it towards the end of the beat and then you have your, your uh, volume sort of quickly cutting. So you get this like at the, the start of a bar. This time it was kind of more, let's let it hang out a bit. Let's make it natural. So I, rather than, you know, programming it with a, a volume envelope on a screen, it was all with a, with a, the volume knob of a distortion pedal. So you get it hanging over the start of the bar, which actually sounds more, um, more intense because you've got this kind of like this noise at the start of the bar. So it was kind of allowing those things to happen. Um, and I've also found there is this strange thing that happens with samples, uh, especially if I steal, occasionally steal a, a sample from an orchestral recording or something like that. And one of my techniques is, I mean, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to have a little bit of Mozart in the middle of your song. So you've got to take that thing and try and turn it into something else. And sometimes ways to do that is you might time stretch it or reverse it or do something. A lot of what I did was just chuck it into a, do a sampler and map it over a bunch of keys. Um, so I'd record record this part, and with with Revelator, it was so fucking ridiculously low-fi um, because of the the nature of my gear. It was basically just an SM57 microphone stuck in front of my monitor speakers, and like, all right, I'll record that into this other computer. So it's you hear that at the end of Twine Towers, you hear all this noise in the back, and that's because I've got so much compression going on. Uh, and it's picking up all this bizarre stuff going in the room tone. And the room tone's ducking as the sound came in, which ended up being the character of the sound I like. But if you take that sound and chuck it into a sampler, you don't really know what key it's in. And then you've got it mapped to different keys. So as you play the keys, you're getting the sounds changing and it's pitch shifting as you, you change each different key. And you find the, the key that works um, from a, that's actually in tune. And it, you, without even thinking about the way the, the sound actually works in terms of rhythm. I found, I don't know how this happens or why, but if you find that right key and you play the note, somehow that sample will always work from a rhythm perspective. And I don't know how or why, but it just seemed to happen every time I did it. You'd hit a note and it might go, instead of going for, you know, a bar, it might go for a bar and a half or something like that, or a bar and a half and a tiny little bit. But for some reason, it just sounds right. It's It just works. And if you loop it like that, something strange happens. And so that's why um, if you listen to the end of Twine Towers, there's that, that string thing going on. That's not a perfect loop. It changes at a strange place in the song, but for some reason it, it works and it, it sounds great the way it, it, it's constantly changing where it peaks and, and crests and all that sort of stuff against what the guitars are doing is, is a cool moment, I think. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Tim Pope from the Amenta in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of heavy hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. 
You can find tickets at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our interview with Tim Pope from the Amenta. I want to um, uh, go back to this idea of tension a little bit, and in addition to the uh, purely sort of like musical dynamics and tension that this album has, uh, just sort of in hearing you speak about the uh, the technology that you're using in the past and now using, um, there's it occurs to me that there may be a tension between also uh, the fact that you are seeking to use uh, a more organic approach and then all of the technology you're using to actually um, record with other people in other places. Uh, does that uh, does that factor in in some in any sort of subconscious way? Probably. Properly. I mean, I guess when you're recording on a computer, it's it's always a fight against the easy way. And that's that's definitely a form of tension. So, I mean, I could very easily sit there and go, I'm just going to record a whole bunch of stuff and then try and structure something around it later and sit in front of the computer and work it all out. So I'm constantly fighting against myself to say, no, don't do that. That's that's You've done that. Don't do it again. Um, so there's definitely a tension there. And I think one of the the cool things about the the way we work and sending it sort of to someone else over the internet and all that sort of stuff is uh, they don't have any they they're not sitting there while I'm doing while I'm creating this stuff. So I play around with things and I think this is amazing. I'm playing a pedestal fan and it sounds like that. That's fucking cool because we're sending it digitally and they've got absolutely no idea what that sounds like. They've just got an MP3 of of my work in progress. They might go, "What the fuck is that stupid screeching sound in the background?" get rid of that that's nonsense so you get you get obviously i fall in love with things because they are real world at the end of the day they do have to go through this digital funnel and they get reduced to just pure sound uh and the other guys react to it that way and so you get a cool um i guess there is there is the tension between what i'm enjoying doing and what it actually sounds like um so i think there is there is some significant um tension that comes from that i think that's something that we've always had as a band we in our head where we're not the industrial band that everyone thinks we are and that's that's another form of tension i think is that uh there's this perception of what the band is and we're always um fighting against that so we have this reputation of being this industrial band which i think is a terrible term uh, and that we use all this this technology in a certain way and part of what we do is probably partially consciously but certainly subconsciously we're fighting against um against that and trying not to be that as much as possible so the movement towards organic sounds and things like that on this album is because every single review we get talks about this australian industrial band and as far as we're concerned we released one album that could even vaguely be called industrial 2008 which was non for us the rest of the stuff just it wasn't the first album we thought was just you know Black and Death Metal or whatever it was called back in those days. The second album, we lent into it a little bit after people were like, oh, this is an industrial band. We're like, well, I don't know about that, but we'll give it a go. Um, but even that album, we we thought of that as a as a psychedelic album more than an industrial album. It was more about, oh, 
let's let's use heaps of delays and weird stuff like that and see what it sounds like. It was experimenting with the only equipment we had at the time, which tended to be computers, because all our gear got stolen from a gig. So we had all our computer, all our keyboards and things were gone. We lost guitars, so it was all kind of let's see what we can do with a computer. But that's the only one that we can really see being industrial. With ever since Flesh's Air, it's been we're not that. So stop calling us that. We're going to try something completely different. So you can never call us industrial, uh, which hasn't worked at all. But even still, this album, we're like, no one will ever think this is industrial. No one's going to ever call us an industrial band ever again. No, people, people still think it's industrial music. Yeah, I think uh, being deaf to media and perceptions is always a, a struggle, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I want to uh, lean into uh, something we talked about earlier and that you touched on, and that is sort of the... Uh, interplay between the, we could call them atmospheric components to your songs, and then the guitar or percussive elements in a lot of ways that accentuate uh, heaviness, which, I mean, the atmospheric components do that too, but pace is oftentimes the an indicator of what we think of when we think of like intensity or heaviness in the genres of, in the stock genres of like black metal and death metal. Um, it, on this, uh, on Revelator, um, the atmosphere components, because of some of the things you outlined, uh, earlier, uh, are a little more at the forefront pace being a part of that. It it seems like, um, and with that, there is some space of, uh, like, I mean, I felt like really nervous listening to this album. And I think that that's probably an accomplishment uh in, in because not a lot of metal uh makes people feel that way and that's a, a very like visceral thing so um while these sort of things aren't really new for you as far as letting the atmosphere be at the forefront um we can look back at each album and point to at least a couple of tracks where uh you're not playing at 200 plus bpm um there's also vocal elements that give that breathe into this space differently. Um, uh, t- tell us a little bit about this sort of tension uh, within uh, pace and then maybe construction versus uh, production. Yeah. Um, well, I think you kind of touched on, on one of the big aspects, which as you were talking was, was it's occurred to me probably for the first time, which is that I think <clears throat> a lot of our changes in sound actually come from the vocalist we're working with at the time. So um, the first album with Mark, uh, he was, you know, we, we'd pretty much written the music and we bullied him into sounding the way we wanted him to sound. Um, but from there was, uh, we, we got Jared in um, 2008 for the non-album and the style of his vocals and the kind of the person he was changed what we were writing and the way we were writing. And so, from a lyrical perspective, it changed what I was doing. And from a from a musical perspective, it changed everything. So everything kind of fit together. Ever since Kane joined in 2009, I think there's been a a, a working towards what he does best and what he he um, he loves, I know, just in discussioning with him. And what um, he does really well is that kind of creepier, kind of odd thing. He's not a, he's not a, um, I mean, he can do the kind of really sort of extreme in your face screaming and stuff, but a lot of his focus is more on, on the atmosphere of his voice and what he's imparting to the song in terms of a, a, an overall ambience. And I think as we've gone on working with Kane, 
uh, and as he's he's had much more of a, a a part of the writing process, it's just been a natural process of moving towards something that has more of that natural tension and eeriness. Um, so, recording this album, it was it it didn't feel right to have to start off and just play eight songs of two forty blast beats and things like that because Kane Kane would do well on it, but where Kane really comes to the fore in terms of vocals is when things come back and he's got a moment, he's got time to to let his vocals do the thing that they do. Um, so I think that really affects the way everything was written. Um, and with the, the guitars and, the, and the, the ambient stuff, I think uh, there's always been, as you, as you mentioned, there's always been that in the band anyway. There's always been these moments where we try and slow down and, and we've got a reputation for being very balls to the wall for the entire time. But when you look actually back at every single album, there are at least one or two songs that are, you know, what we would call the ballads of, of the album. So it's always been there. This time it was just, we've got a vocalist who can make hay with this. Let's let's lean into it as much as we possibly can and, and just see what happens. Um, so I think it's all, everything informs everything and it all just becomes a sort of, um, the, the thing I always think about in my head is it's like circling around the perfect idea. So you start out really, really far from it and you keep circling around it and you just get closer and closer each time you pass it. And I think that's just what we've been doing our entire career is kind of getting towards something that is the the refinement of, of kind of what we really like and what want to be. Uh, and I think that's just what's been happening, especially with Revelator, is just we're getting more confident with playing the right thing instead of playing the ego thing. It's very easy. I mean, I, I started as a guitar player um, and I know in my early riffs, it was more about how they felt to play than how they actually sounded. Uh, and I think as you get older, maybe, and as you get a little bit more experienced, it becomes less about what you're actually playing and, and the ego side. And I don't really care if my fingers don't move fast and people in the front row don't go, well, look at these little spaghetti fingers. I think it's more about how does this sound? If, if I can just play one note and it adds to the song, let's do that. So a lot of the percussive elements kind of, I guess the speed and the percussive elements got stretched out a bit and allowed to to opening up the room for the rest of the band to do their thing. So people weren't trying to all be the loudest person in the room at the same time. It's more, let's let's open up the space and, and see what we can do with the space once we've got the sort of the bones of it all kind of sitting around. I think um, what I do as a, as a keys and samples guy has changed, or my perception of it has changed, especially on this album. Uh, whereas before I was trying to, I mean, there's always, obviously there's always elements of ego, but you try and remove it. But I think I was always adding, trying to add something that um, added a new melodic or percussive element to a song. Now my focus is less about uh, adding a new element and more about uh, making sure that the ideas are uneasy. So rather than you know playing, I've never wanted to play the little twinkly piano bits, but rather than playing something that's that's all over the place and you know um, quite busy. I've spent more time kind of just hanging on a, on a chord and bending it in and out of tune over what the guitars are doing and things like that because it seems to add tension. It's like a, it's like when you hear, uh, I don't know if you guys know, Scott Walker, the uh, now dead, um, you know, uh, once upon a time he was a he's a orchestral pop singer and then he went kind of avant-garde. But a lot of his string arrangements are amazing. You listen to what the strings are doing in his songs, even the early stuff where he was singing this quite sort of pretty orchestral pop. There was these string sounds that would just sort of hover over everything and just sort of warp in and out of tune and it just made the whole thing just odd. 
Uh, and that's that's kind of what I see myself as underneath the or over the top or underneath or whatever of this sort of more aggressive churning kind of music. So I think as we've all kind of got to that point with our respective instruments, it's kind of changed the way the dynamic of how the instruments interplay. Um, and I think this time around, it just got it just made more sense that uh, everything just had a little bit more of that that room to breathe. It just seems right. Absolutely. Uh, tracks like uh, Twin Towers especially is one where you see um, everyone hanging on to something uh, in some way. And I think the the work that's done with uh, with Kane's voice on that tr on that track specifically um, pushes the set like the sound is in a totally uncharted territory uh, for the band. I thought when I thought listening to it. Uh, that it was actually Devin Townsend uh, on the track and not and not Kane singing, but I think that that's a that's a great thing because uh, that there is exceeding expectation and going above what uh, what one may think. Um, while we've while we're hanging on to uh, uh, Kane's contributions and how you sort of uh, worked with him. Uh, let's talk about some of the lyrics and themes uh, that you may be working with here. Um, where, uh, what approach did you sort of take with the, uh, with the construction of the lyrics and the songwriting and where did you start and how did, uh, how was it working with Kane this time? Uh, so the, the lyric was, it, um, it was a, a different process for me this time around than, than it's ever been. Um, I think in the past I've started with a theme. So, you know, this is what I'm going to write about and then I'll write the lyrics to the theme, which, you know, worked well. Um, but I think the problem with that is when you come into discussing lyrics, uh, the lyrics kind of work, or all art, I think, works when it's to a certain extent unexplained. It's got to be interpreted. Uh, I think if you if you start nailing down what an artwork means, you start limiting it. And I think you um, the power of it comes from people approaching it completely differently uh, and having their own experience with it. And there may be maybe overarching ideas, but basically the artwork happens not on a, you know, a, a painting or in a piece of music, it happens in people's minds. That's where the artwork actually is. Everything else is just material that, that creates that artwork. Um, so I found with, with lyrics, when I wrote lyrics in the past and had a theme, my way of writing lyrics is to take that theme and just kind of let the subconscious go a little bit and, ideas suggest themselves. So even even back then when I was writing writing lyrics, it had started along a certain idea but branch out into different things. And it would take on for me as the the writer, initially there would be this sort of richness about it. It was like this is quite there there's more depth than than you could sum up in a couple of sentences because it's referring to this, which is, you know, maybe this means something very personal to me, which is not going to mean anything to anyone else. Um, but for me it's got this this stuff. And I found when I um We'd talk, we'd talk about it in interviews and people would say, what does this song mean? What does this song mean? You start, because of the nature of, of doing interviews and all that sort of stuff, is the questions kind of are relatively similar each time. So you do tend to find that your answers become similar. And the more you talk about um, a song in a certain way and you've got a way of describing that song, you start to lose all the magic. It becomes only that explanation, the story you told yourself about the song. You don't actually, you lose a lot of the, the magic, all the, all the subconscious stuff that that is in there kind of wither away, withers away and dies. So when I think about older songs, I tend to forget 
uh, they, they don't have that richness for me anymore uh, in terms of lyrics. So I wanted to find a way to protect that as much as I possibly could. Um, and also I didn't want to, well, I wanted to experiment with, instead of having a, a theme and writing to the theme, I wanted the lyrics to suggest themes. Um, so just kind of like, a, I guess, uh, automatic writing. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's where people just sort of start writing without thinking. And the idea is that your subconscious is going to start dictating what you're writing. And then if you read that back, you'll, you'll see something amazing that your, your brain is trying to tell you. Um, or another example would be, um, there's a surrealist game called Exquisite Corpse, which is where people would fold over a bit of paper and they'd write a bit of a story, pass it to the next person who can't see what they've written, who write the next part, and so on, until at the end you've got this kind of, this map of everyone's kind of obsessions, which makes a whole new story. It's the juxtapositions of ideas. So I thought those sort of things were quite interesting. Um, so this time around, rather than rather than write those lyrics, I thought, right, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna carry around a book, and I'm just gonna write ideas as they come to me. And I did that for I think probably three or four years. I started almost immediately after Flesh's Air, just started writing down things. And my aim was, over the course of writing all that, without kind of connecting larger ideas. At the end, those ideas would kind of be a map of, of my obsessions that maybe I wasn't even aware of, things that, you know, I um, I keep thinking about and keep worrying at like a terrier worries at a, a trouser cuff, you know, the ideas that just keep popping up. And so I, I wrote all these phrases out and quite often they were puns and plays on words, things like that. Sometimes they were plays on old lyrics of ours. So I, I play a game, I've always played it in my head where I take phrases and just try and twist them. So you're just trying to, and change letters and, and try and change the way they sound until by the end you, you have something that's completely different it has no relation to the original phrase so there's a lot of those sort of games in there as well uh so i'd had this this book of of different ideas when it came to writing lyrics i started assembling it the way i guess almost like a collage so um if you think about a, a collage in terms of um you know in terms of a visual sense you're getting pictures that aren't necessarily related but you put them together in a way that ideally um, the juxtaposition of the two, the two um, images create something new and creates a kind of a third interesting idea. So I was trying that with these little fragments of lyrics of thinking, okay, well, I'll take this part. And to me, that kind of works on a subconscious level with this part. I'm not sure how yet, but I'm just going to put them together. And that seems to work. And from there, I started building out these larger lyrics, which do have um, overrun or themes that run through them but there's, there's weird spiky bits that come out that can't necessarily be explained. Uh, so I wanted something that, that was as mysterious to me as it was to other people. Um, so now when I come to explain it, I can't tell you what that song is about. I could break down individual phrases and go, I'm pretty sure I remember what that's about, but it isn't now. Now for me, when I, it's almost like divining the future. And this is, oh, fuck, this is ridiculous. I can hear myself saying it, it's fucking ridiculous. But it's, William Burroughs used to say with cut-ups, he used to do these cut-ups of, of words with um, Brian Gisson. They'd cut together different books and they'd put them together and their idea was that it would tell the future. But if you cut words apart, they start telling the future. Uh, and I've always read that and like, you know, you guys are on heroin, what the fuck do you know? But I think what they're actually saying is the brain has, a, has an incredible ability to find patterns, um, pareidolia. So I think what when you're when you're approaching this sort of this massive words that you don't necessarily understand it's human nature to try and find meaning in in that and in these lyrics i find meaning all the time and i find sometimes 
some chunk of lyric which meant something to me, something will happen in my life and I go, ha, ah, that kind of refers to that. And so it's almost like you're predicting the future, except what it actually is, is, is your brain is interpreting things and creating patterns. Let's be honest here, there's no, no goddamn predicting the future. So that was, that was my, um, that was my method for writing the lyrics. Um, one of the other things that was really good with working with Kane is, um, I've, I've always known over time, the way we write music is, uh, it, it's always changing up until it's, until it's mastered, anything can happen. Parts can get chucked out. We can, you know, change the complete structure of songs. So my lyrics always had to be, in order for the lyrics to work, they had to be relatively modular. You couldn't write a, you know, a narrative of, you know, like an Opeth style narrative about this is, this is the story for the entire album because whole chunks could get taken out. You know, you'd, you'd lose large chunks of the narrative because that part just doesn't work musically. We're going to have to move it. And all of a sudden the whole lyrics are thrown out. So I've always worked the idea that lyrics were chunks. They're little chunks of information that can be, if, if this chunk ends up over here, it doesn't necessarily change the meaning. Um, and so that's something that I've always worked with. But this time around, it was a deliberate focus on, I'm going to allow Kane firstly to interpret meaning and, and feel and all that sort of stuff as much as he likes. So there was no dictation of this is what this means, this is how you say it. Um, but also he arranges stuff. So I'll give him a chunk of lyrics, generally not written to a song. Um, it's just the way we've always done it. Uh, and he'll take that and then he'll rearrange and he'll play with stuff and he'll find ways for it to work. So there, there was this second level of, of um, creating some mystery for me was that I was taking all this, these lyrics and creating these little chunks and, and creating this collage, but then I was giving it to Kane and, and saying, right, now that I've created this collage, you go and cut it up and, and rearrange it for me. So it's completely new and, and strange to me. So for me, it's still got that for the first time, I've, I'm still getting the magic from that stuff. It's for me, it's still unusual. There's still weird juxtapositions I wouldn't necessarily have done by myself, but Kane's put them together, which worked really, really well. Did, uh, did anything come out through this process of you cutting it, you putting things together that were pieces on their own and then Kane reimagining them? Did anything come back full circle into what you had written down originally? Oh, there were. They're, they're, it's amazing. It's amazing how people, you know, people will find the, the pattern and put it back together. It, it is quite amazing. So there was definitely times where that happened. Um, and I think there were times where I'd written written a lyric and I was like, this is what it means. And Kane would put it to something else. And go, Actually, this is what it means. Like, oh, hang on. That's what this other part means. And so they'd, they'd, the way things, the way the meanings would kind of work together was quite interesting. But yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I want to, uh, I was curious about something that in previous discussions we've talked about, and this has been something you've written about in previous albums, and that is uh, sort of binary and binary tendency in thinking and in our sort of valuation. Um, this is something that uh, was a big theme on uh, Non, and in a way it comes in flesh's air as far as our psyche being an oscillation between the obliterate and realist. Uh, was this uh, binary something that you found coming up in your own in your own writing and in the end uh, end product? Definitely, uh, I think um, the binary thing seems to be a natural um, fallback for human thought. So I find myself falling into it sometimes as well. We know 
we always think about here is here is here is what I am and here's everything else. So there's always the us and them is already a binary. Uh, and that's I think we base everything around that. Uh, it's something that you know I, I don't think is actually the way life is lived. So the as uh, when I, as you know I've always mentioned is that I think that's that's a, an oversimplification of, of what things actually are. Um, so it definitely pops up in this, in, but in, in strange ways. I guess one of the one of the reasons why the lyrics were written the way they were is to try and remove as much of that as possible and allow the grayness to come out. And the grayness is is that there's a cat in the background. That's cool. Uh, there's is allow the grayness to um, to be the kind of focus. Allow the the parts in between the two binaries. So you know you've got in terms of the the obliterate and the realist, it's a continuum rather than like a it's two poles of a continuum rather than being two separate things. So you you are oscillating between the two, and it's kind of a spectrum between the two. And that's in my experience, that's actually life is more spectrum based rather than than two binaries, two poles. Um, I think people tend to live along that spectrum, but they're not aware of it. And so allowing the subconscious to dictate the way um, meaning is interpreted, I think I think forces that to be addressed. You can't you can't really say this is and that isn't. It's maybe. I don't know. This is this is how I see it. How do you see it? If there's no actual, this is the meaning, then it, it forces um, forces that grey to be the only only sort of field that we can work in. If I'm not telling you what the lyrics mean to me, you have to, or you don't have to. I mean, ideally, you will uh, interpret them and 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 um, come up with your own meaning. And those those two things now are not uh, yes and no. They're maybe and maybe which means there's room for a third maybe and there's a fourth maybe and all that sort of stuff. So ideally there's as many different um, units as there are people interpreting. Excellent. I think this is a, a good spot to wrap. Um, Tim, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was awesome.